Hello and welcome to The Bunker Daily. I am your host, Alex Andreu. A guilt is a UK government liability in sterling issued by Her Majesty's Treasury and listed on the London Stock Exchange. The guilt market is comprised of two different types of securities, conventional guilds and index-linked guilds. This is the description of guilds on the government website. If what you actually just heard was hurdy-gurdy-gurdy government, blah, 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 <laughs> sterling, yada, yada, fear not, you're not alone. I promise you that in 20 minutes, you will understand precisely what guilds are and why they are at the center of the current economic storm. My guest today is former economic special advisor to Theresa May and Vince Cable, former Financial Times leader writer, and now senior fellow at the Institute of Government. Welcome to the bunker, Giles Wilkes. Thank you for having me. It's a thrill to be here. Giles, how would you explain guilds to a 10-year-old? It would make me supremely happy if this explanation involved someone growing apples, having apples and wanting apples. (laughs) Okay. First, forget about all of the apples, I'm afraid, (laughs) because apples don't last, um, whereas government promises are meant to. And um, although you might get a different impression from the action of the last few weeks. So uh, what is a guilt? A guilt is a government bond. A bond is a piece of paper that promises to pay you back some money in future. So pretty much all the time, the government spends more money than it raises in taxes. So it needs to make up the difference by borrowing money from URI or from pension funds or from banks. And in order to get that money, it normally needs to pay a little bit of interest. So you have Mm -hmm. a a government bond that is the mechanism by which it does it. It will say something like, this promises to repay you £100 in 20 years' time. And every year that you hold it, you're going to get paid £5 for each of it. So you get a little bit of interest and then you get your capital back. And because it's the government, the government has the power to tax people at the point of a gun if necessary, you know that you're going to get paid back. And your only real worry is that the pounds that you're going to be paid back with are not going to be worth as much in terms of being able to buy actual stuff in 20 years time or whatever it is. So they're just like a way of lending money to the government in short. Why does the state need to borrow money from itself. Why couldn't it just print currency? Well, sometimes it does. I mean, the trouble is, if you increase the amount of currency out there and don't do anything to increase what's actually being produced in the economy, Mm. uh, what that causes is inflation. In other words, I mean, imagine, okay, let's go back to apples. Suppose the economy was an apple farm and it produces a thousand apples a year and it's got money just bits of paper, and it's got a thousand pounds of that those bits of paper. Now, if it suddenly had fifteen hundred pounds of those bits of paper, each apple is going to be worth you know a third less rather than being worth one pound each. It'll be worth sixty six pence each. So you'll have inflation in the price of apples. So simply printing money is a way of paying for things, but the way you pay for it is that everybody becomes poorer because their money doesn't go as far anymore. I knew the apples were going to come in handy. Do I detect from that that guilds are an interchangeable term to government bonds or other other types of government bonds, which means that guilds is a more specific thing? 
Uh, guilts is just an old-fashioned English word because we were probably doing it before anybody else. A lot of people credit our creation of the government bond market with helping to do things like beat the French in wars 200 years ago. And as a result, we seem to have the right to keep some of the archaic phrases for it. I think it refers to gilt-edged, which is when you had a little bit of gold yeah, around yeah. the edge of a paper. But basically, it's the same as government bond. It just means specifically for the United Kingdom. Okay, so how has the gilt market reacted in the last few weeks? And why is that a worry? It's quite hard to answer this question without access to dance or extreme gifts <laughs> or something. I, I want you to imagine somebody with a, a flying contraption jumping off a cliff and collapsing in a pile of feathers and balsa wood at the bottom of the cliff. The, the gilt market has not reacted this badly to anything in my memory, and I'm quite old. In terms of prices, the gilt prices have collapsed, which means the interest rates that are implicit on buying those bonds has shot up. So around two or three months ago, to lend for the 10 years to the government, you might be getting 2% interest, and now you're getting more like 45 or 5 Those sound like quite small numbers. They're absolutely gigantic numbers when mm-hmm. you're a pension fund who's been used to receiving such small amounts for such a long time. It's been the most extreme financial market movements that the UK has seen since, apart from a couple of days of COVID, the financial crisis 13, 14 years ago. Giles, government is insisting that these problems are global, they're caused by external factors, and they're nothing to do with their uh, announcement. Is that completely true, mostly true, largely nonsense? It's an important environmental factor that the global economy to which quasi Kwarteng stood up on the 23rd of September was one that you wouldn't like to be taking risks with. I mean, all year, as everybody knows, we've been seeing a brewing inflation problem in large part, but not entirely, triggered by Vladimir Putin's barbaric actions in Ukraine and the incredible rise in the price of natural gas, but also caused by post-COVID shocks, the vast amount of stimulus that went into the US economy in 2020 and 2021, all sorts of things causing a lot of inflation and causing the American authorities in particular to start raising interest rates. And the dollar being the world's global currency, when they start tightening their policy and raising rates, everybody else has to. So interest rates were already rising to a certain degree when Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng decided that the theme of their leadership election should be, we're going to cut loads and loads of taxes. In that context, it's no excuse whatsoever. It's basically like saying, we saw all sorts of dry and burning tinder lying around and we decided to have a great big petrol fight in the middle of it. Mm, It doesn't mm. make it any better. It's an incredibly (laughs) unwise thing to do precisely because the international situation was so dangerous. So yes, rates are rising. In France, they're now at 3% when they were 1% a few um, months ago, but they haven't gone up anything like as much in France and Germany as they have over here. We've been given what the Nobel Prize winning economist Paul Krugman has called the moron risk premium. I saw that. He doesn't mince words. Yes. Okay. So in that environment, was why has the Bank of England had to step in? And what are the effects of that intervention? Well, wow, this is where it gets really fiddly. Now, the government bond market is incredibly important to all sorts of investors, but uh-huh. overwhelmingly so to the pension industry. The pension industry is, in a sense, always in a position of needing to gather your contributions now, hope that they grow over 10, 20, 30 years, and then when they retire being able to invest them in something that pays interest and pays for your pension. So they are 
exquisitely concerned with what current and future interest rates are going to be for that pot of money to do the job it's meant to do. And they're not allowed to not pay you that pension. Hmm. So it's an absolutely solid liability for them. And they're so involved in this precisely because as an investment, it's considered so safe, right? Exactly. The safer the appearance of the investor, the more sort of the, the hidden danger, if anything should go wrong. It's a really good point. And ultimately, they'll be pleased in, at the end of all of this, the interest rates are higher because it means you have to save less to get the same income. But in the short run, they had been hedging against the risk that those rates didn't go up with complicated things called liability-driven insurance, which in effect meant that they were speculating in the short run on interest rates not rising very fast, very quickly, which is precisely what quasi Quartang and Liz Trust imposed on them. So they had these this sort of explosive vehicle next to them called the LDI, which then rapidly lost money and required that they find ready cash really quickly to keep it funded or to close it off, which meant a panic in that part of the pensions industry. And rapid selling off of government bonds, even more than was already inspired by the mini budget. So if you followed that all correctly, then... I, I followed that, and, and it sounds to me suspiciously like what happened in 2007 in the States, where you had the problem with mortgages and alongside them, this sort of insurance on mortgages. Yes, there are real echoes of it. I mean, in particular themes like this being something that nobody ever felt they had to think about because it was so safe, as you implied earlier. And markets moving to a degree that doesn't seem justified by even the most extremely unwise budget. So the the way the the government bond prices were moving in the days after quasi-quartang speech was so extreme that it indicated some people in the market were being forced to trade at whatever level they could get which is the way financial people hate to operate because that's the way you turn into a sucker. You're just selling at whatever price. So Mm. they were selling in total distress and that was threatening their liquidity and possible solvency in places. And that is why the Bank of England initially intervened. It said, look, we can't have a disorderly market. It could cart out all sorts of people, cause all sorts of collateral damage. And so we're going to step in. The central bank is independent, but it's still an expression of the state. Right. So so we have one bit of the state basically buying IOUs from another bit of the state to get it out of trouble. Is that a fair layman summary? It is, although it raises absolutely exquisite political economy dilemmas, because we have made that bit of the state, the Bank of England, with its ability to print money and buy pretty much anything, independent in its operations of the government for very good reasons, which is you don't want to go up to politicians and on their first day in government point at a big money press and say, what would you like to do with that? Because things would go terribly, horribly wrong. And in particular, they would be very, very bad at controlling inflation. And this situation has violated that distance terribly because either clumsily or intentionally, the Treasury has acted in such a way that has forced the Independent Bank of England to act. So it's become... put out of a irresponsible budget. And as a result, the Bank of England had to do things that stopped the consequences spiralling out of control. I was uh, interviewing Danny Blanchflower a couple of weeks ago, and he was saying that this sort of expansion would normally be a decision for the Monetary Policy Committee. And the fact that the initial statement just came from the governor of the Bank of England and seemed to him to be basically dictated by the Treasury was a massive 
co-mingling of a massive fall of those Chinese walls that should be in place in many ways. I mean, Danny Blanchflood deserves credit for having been on that committee himself and knowing of what he speaks and during the financial crisis, no less. But there is meant to be a distinction between the Bank of England's duties with regard to controlling the monetary situation in the country, inflation effectively, and the financial stability situations. And in the letter that John Cunliffe, one member of that committee, released to explain the bank's actions, they tried really, really hard to say, look, we're doing this for financial stability reasons, but we're absolutely resolute to keep going where we are on the monetary policy reasons. And it's that distinction that probably makes them think you don't need the monetary policy committee to meet to decide on the financial interventions. But they're going to really struggle to hold that line because if the bank has to stay there for too long, it's very difficult to distinguish one thing from the other. It's really, really hard to. So this Mm. is why I think Andrew Bailey has been twisting around so much this week, because he's determined not to make it look like they're going to be any less determined to deal with inflation, even as they're doing things, pumping money in to buy bonds that are worse for inflation. What happens when that intervention stops on Monday? Um, if it stops on Monday, because actually some of the smart people I listen to seem to suggest that if push came to shove, it would be extended. I think your instincts there first, Alex, are really right in that every big financial crisis like the euro crisis or the big one in 2008 normally starts with some central banker saying, we believe in moral hazard. You've got to look after your own risks. Otherwise, it's a terrible system. And in the end, they always have to rescue because the steaming pile of rubble that might result if they don't is is too awful to contemplate. But Mm -hmm. what happens on Monday, I don't honestly know. It is the case that Bailey is right that after a while, these pension funds ought to have sorted out these risks, sold off the assets, got themselves liquid enough and dealt with it. That ought to happen after a certain point. But whether that is going to be done by Friday, it's really hard to know because it's like a game of poker. Nobody can really show their hand. If one of these players said, oh, by the way, we need another week, they're basically (laughs) signaling to the market to monster them. So it's a really opaque situation. I just hope the bank knows what it's doing and has called them up and got a frank statement out of all of them because if there is a distress sale on monday oh my lord it, i mean i'm not sure how many more mm. times the government can take a sickening lurch upwards in guilt yields there has been also a lot of talk this week about contagion mm-hmm. the notion that this problem is starting to or could affect other asset classes. You you mentioned LDIs, liability-driven investments. We saw Eurozone guilds effectively tracking UK guild turmoil uh, on yep. Tuesday. How real is that prospect? And how good are the firewalls that have been put in place after 2008? Wow, that's a, such a great question, Alex, because I mean, people who say that Britain is, doesn't pull its weight in the own world anymore haven't noticed how much if we really put our minds through it, we could really mess up the financial system just on our own. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, it's impossible to believe that movements in other foreign bonds are entirely unrelated to ours, because if you're looking at the British government and you're saying they'll pay you 5% and the German government will only pay you 25 eventually at some point you'll think, why not get out of the German ones and then to the British instead and take a risk on the currency? So there's bound to be a big arbitrage between those markets, except you might be worried the British one is just going to collapse in smoke for one of these reasons. But that could work the other way around as well, right? So so 
pension funds looking for safe investments could be fleeing the UK yes. gilts market and going to other territories that they consider safer, pushing that price up. Yes, I mean, and that will be the ultimate sign that we're in a real crisis is when people just suddenly rush into something like the American market, where mm. it's regarded as really safe, or Japan or or the Swiss franc. But whether, I mean, how far the contagion has gone, I mean, you can only guess, but the last few days have been really terrible for equity markets. And that's the sorts of thing that pension funds might have been forced to sell to raise cash to deal with their new risks here. I mean, ultimately, for all that I said that we're still able to mess up the world economy, the number one thing that everyone's caring about is what the Federal Reserve in the States does next. And the print on inflation that is being produced later today, which probably listeners will know about and I'm still in eager anticipation mm. of. And that's probably more important for global sentiment, that and the conduct of the war in Ukraine, than anything we can mess up on this small island. I've also heard many analysts saying that part of the turmoil is a loss of institutional confidence because mm -hmm. the treasury in the Bank of England seemed to be pulling in opposite directions. Is there some truth to that? Can that be fixed? Absolutely. I mean, it's it's really difficult to run monetary policy from the Bank of England's point of view when it doesn't know what's going to be coming out of the Treasury a few miles away and when it makes such a gigantic difference to the conditions it's got to operate in. So that sign of malcoordination must be terrible for confidence because the Bank of England sits down, has a meeting and doesn't know what it's all the variables in its spreadsheet need to say. Number two, it's terrible for the rest of us not being able to scrutinise properly the effect of this government's actions and its refusal to publish Office for Budget Responsibility forecasts and analysis alongside this gigantic budget is just really terrible for confidence. And it looks shifty. It looks like somebody wanting to just sort of say, blah, 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 I don't want to listen to you, when there might be some really important statements to be heard, like it doesn't do so much for growth as you think, Chancellor. That sends a really terrible message because it suggests that not only are they driving the car in a chaotic and dangerous way, but they're seeming to choose to put on a blindfold and, and say, because mm. they're so good at driving, who needs to be able to see through the windscreen? And that sort of thing is really just unnerving because it's provided an anchor by which everybody is meant to be able to understand the way the government will react and behave in the future. There are others for instance, Karen Ward of JP Morgan, writing in the FT, who say this is a brutal but necessary adjustment to the price of debt. She writes that she's starting to get excited about bonds after many years of feeling they were horribly mispriced. Is there something to that? Well, I mean, uh, you've got a rate, Karen. She was a special advisor for a few months under Philip Hammond as well. It's brutal, that's true, and it's possible to be excited about it. If you're a saver and your job is putting money around the place, it's much more exciting to see all these 5 and 6% opportunities <laughs> than the 2% ones. The necessary is really, really hard to judge because the interest rate out there plays a gazillion roles in the economy. It's meant to be the thing that ensures that investment rises at the right level or that consumers are the right level of confidence. So to say, isn't this welcome? Well, let's see what it does to mortgage holders and the consumer confidence. Let's see what it does to businesses' plans to invest. If they're sitting there saying, I can now get 6% just lending to the government, why should I be investing in this complicated nuclear power station or biotechnology campus or whatever? So there's too many different roles played by the rate of interest for somebody just to point at it being higher and say, oh, it's better there. It'd be great if it was higher because there's huge abundant confidence in our economy. And that's, you know, that can happen like in the 80s. Yeah. That's why interest rates were high. But if it's just happening because the government has messed up, 
it's not a great sign at all. Giles, just a couple of final questions, and I want to try and widen it a tiny bit. You mentioned how closely the players in this have to play their cards to the chest because everyone is watching. There can be market movements that are sudden and quite catastrophic. Why do we allow speculation in such vital areas? I mean, it seems to me that speculators only make money from big ups and downs. And so we have a huge sector within our finance with a perverse incentive to create turbulence. Why would a sovereign nation want to permit citizens to bet against it? Well, I mean, this is just a phenomenally interesting question. The economics 101 answer is that capital should be free to seek its best returns. And that by having free capital markets, you enable ultimately the cost of capital for everybody to be lower. And the alternative, like the state deciding where people can invest and so forth, is bound to be biased and distorted and inefficient in the long run. Now, on the speculation point, I I can see you've got... It's interesting, though, you get two contradictory critiques of speculators. I mean, these hedge funds keep driving everything to the wall criticisms. The other one is that hedge funds don't make very much money. If you actually read the Financial Times closely, you find sometimes these people get paid loads and loads of money and they make nothing from all this speculation. You wonder why the mugs even giving them money to try at it. Now, in theory, having lots of buyers and sellers in the market means that you get a more liquid price out as a pension fund or a company or something like that. That's the argument. Some of the really extreme speculation, it's really hard to justify a priori. But I would, I would slightly disagree with the idea that they've got an incentive to create the volatility. Very few financial market participants want to wake up and the market has gapped down and there's no bids and offers and there are people being get, given margin calls and going bust against the wall. So although one or two people will make money from a situation like this, on average, I suspect they find it really unwelcome and they'd rather there was a more unvolatile environment around them. Okay, one last question, sort of looking forward. I mean, it seems to me that markets, that ghastly collective term for millions of individual decisions, it seems to me there's a loss of confidence, not just in the budget, but in this administration's competence. And what I want to know is, is this fixable? Or or, or will we as a country be paying a, a higher risk premium until there is a a fundamental change of personnel. I think what is really, really hard won is really quickly lost. And in this case, in particular, their confidence amongst the British voting public, that's gone. There is no way there's some opposite to what they've just Mm. done that will suddenly restore their confidence. Not even the equivalent of what Gordon Brown did in 2008, which was genuinely brilliant in it helped to rescue the financial system at the right time that wasn't enough to restore yeah. gordon brown's competence so liz trust just accepting that her budget was a terrible idea and reversing it would do nothing in fact it might make them look yeah. more flaky every u-turn they make may satisfy the terms of uh, of the concern about that particular measure in narrow terms yeah. but makes them look more amateurish yeah less decisive. And I just can't see how they break out of that 
vicious cycle. I quite agree. It's like, you know, you catch somebody trying to commit an act of arson and then you find them, they're stopped from committing the arson. You don't go, well, fair dues, they weren't a very successful arsonist. You still just go, well, we all know what you wanted to do. Let, let's not put them near flammable yes, things. Yes, flammable <laughs> things seem to be a thing. So as for the market confidence, it will be restored eventually. It can't be the case forever that British governments of whatever stripe have to pay 1% or 2% more than foreign governments. But it might take a long while to do it, in particular if this government so damages the fiscal situation that whoever comes in next has to do really difficult things, cut spending or raise taxes. That's... So it might well be that serious damage has been done to the UK's, the confidence of the UK in the eyes of the financial markets. And although that sounds like, you know, we're slaves to these these bond markets, it's a fact of life that that's where we get our money. So it is mm. going to have a lasting cost. And if I were Labour, obviously, they're rubbing their hands at their relative popularity. But I'd also be really, really annoyed that they're messing up the field for future governments to do decent things. Giles Wilkes, thank you for being so clear without once making me feel stupid. Because you're not. This is a, there's some incredibly difficult <laughs> questions in there. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. Remember, there's a new bunker every day, so don't forget to subscribe, review and rate us. And if you want to support our guilt-edged podcast family, the safest investment you could make is to bung us a couple of quid on the funding platform Patreon. Just search for Bunker Podcast Patreon. All the briefings to the press where Liz Truss assembled her team at Chevening this summer, but before she was officially crowned the winner of the leadership contest, were of a shock and awe economic plan and a big bang budget announcement. I remember thinking at the time that it didn't seem to me big bang or shock and awe was the way at a basic attitude level to inspire confidence in one's fiscal management. As our political selection processes seem to have been denigrated to apprentice contestant level, perhaps we shouldn't be surprised at the consequences. This is Alex Andreu in the bunker saying over and out. The Bunker Daily was presented by Alex Andreu. The group editor was Andrew Harrison. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis. And the producers were Jacob Archbold, Yelna Sofronievich, and me, Alex Reese. The assistant producer was Kasia Tomashevich. Our marketing manager is Gina Richard. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.